Welcome to the Fantasy Canon Podcast, where we discuss the classics of fantasy fiction from yesterday and today. I'm your host, David Charlton. And I'm your host, Chris Whedon. Thanks for joining us. Today, we'll be discussing Dragons of Autumn Twilight, Volume 1 of Dragonlance Chronicles by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Please be advised that there will be spoilers galore. We will talk about the story, characters, and themes of this book. So if you haven't read the book and don't want to be spoiled, please come back to this episode at a later date. All right, let's talk about this book, this Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Um, now, normally I would have Chris describe the book. However, um, we're going to change it up a little bit because I still have my original paperback copy from 1984. The one that Chris is currently reading is a um, later edition from the 90s, I believe. So it's got a cover price of $2.95. I think I might have said it was $3.95, but this one is... Oh, yeah. Two ninety five, yeah. um, and the the front cover it's got that really great Dragonlance logo. It's the the name Dragonlance on like a banner, uh, with a lance sort of behind it with Celtic knot knots and tracery designed through it. And it's it was designed by one of the TSR guys named Jim Rosloff, and it was uh, painted by Larry Elmore. They would use a version of this logo. And they're still using a version of this logo right up until today. But sometime in the 90s, they added like a red dragon curled around it, which kind of was like an unnecessary muddling of the design, if you ask me. Yeah, my, mine has the red dragon around it. Yeah, not a fan of that one. I like I like the simplified version better. I have but to I agree. agree. This is Dragonlance Chronicles Volume 1, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. The cover picture is of four characters. Three of them are human or one's a half-elf, half actually, and one of them is a dragon. And uh, the, the three people are standing in the foreground, and it's uh, Tannis Half-Elven, who is red-haired, long-haired, bearded ranger with a bow and arrow. You've got in the middle the uh, character called Goldmoon. She's in, like, soft buckskin leathers. You would look to look at her, uh, the way she's dressed, you would associate her with, like, a Native American imagery except she's about as blonde and blue-eyed as they come yeah. um and then you've got Sturm brightblade who is in full plate mail armor with a sword and shield and a horned helmet and very distinctive drooping uh, mustaches they are in a looks like just off a road uh in an a autumnal setting behind uh, them is a tree and there's a red dragon wrapped around the tree. Looks like he's about to sneak up on him. <laughs> that red dragon is uh, a character named Ember, which we will get to later. Okay. Uh, and the, the, the back cover copy states, actually, you want to read it? Cause I think it might be the same. Lifelong friends. They went their separate ways. Now they are together again, though each holds secrets from the others in his heart. They speak of a world shadowed with rumors of war. They speak of tales of strange monsters, creatures of myth, creatures of legend. They do not speak of their secrets. Not then. Not until a chance encounter with a beautiful, sorrowful woman who bears a magic, magical crystal staff, draws the companions deeper into the shadows, forever changing their lives and shaping the fate of the world. No one expected them to be heroes, least of all, themselves. 
Okay, that is different from what I have. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I'm not going to steal your thunder here, but the cover art's by a different person as well for my copy. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. The back cover of the copy that I have reads, I, I actually per prefer this one because it's quite a bit more i don't know it's got more flair to it <laughs> but it's it reads dragons creatures of legend stories told to children but now dragons have returned to crin the darkness of war and destruction threatens to engulf the land then hope appears a blue crystal staff in the hands of a beautiful barbarian woman the promise of hope as fleeting as smoke upon the autumn wind forces a group of longtime friends into the unlikely roles of heroes Knight and barbarian, warrior and half-elf, dwarf and kender, and dark-souled mage, they begin a perilous quest for the legendary Dragonlance. I like that better as well. Yeah, partially because it's what you first read to get you to read this book. <laughs> Indeed. I think it, I think the flavor of it is better, though. I mean, I think it captures it a little, a little more. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems to sound better to me. And you know, there is a little blurb here from tsr that says the first fantasy novel from the people who know fantasy best tsr inc the producers of dungeons and dragons fantasy role-playing game how about that so it was the first shot fired in the tsr publishing wars well no quite keep what <laughs> but i guess i guess the difference is <laughs> that this is actually published by tsr whereas quag keep i think was probably published by i think it's I want to I think say Bane. Bane is it Bane Books? Okay, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe it that's is. maybe that's the difference. So yeah. what I said when you go back and edit and realize I said the first shot published by TSR, you'll realize that I was right. So go ahead, argue with me. Come on, let's go. Definitely editing that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I wonder how closely the editions match. So in my book. I've got a map of the, the lands of Abyssinia, um, which is sort of just a, a general area map. And then it has the Canticle of the Dragon. Um, you have anything more than that? Uh, no, I have, uh, I have the map and I have Canticle of the Dragon. Yes, that's what I've got. I should, by the way, I should also say I have on hand the Annotated Chronicles. Have you seen this before? I have not. Yeah, this is cool. This is an omnibus edition of all three Chronicles, uh, Winter, uh, Autumn Twilight, Winter Night, and Spring Dawning, but it's annotated. So it has little margin notes by the editor, the writers, and a couple of the design team members as well. It's really fun. It's really cool. They're, they're pretty rare. It's out of print. They don't, I don't think they, I'm pretty sure it's out of print. I don't think you can get this anymore. Um, but they did this for Chronicles and for Legends. And um, there's some really interesting insights that you can get f uh, from this book uh, by reading the margin notes from the writers. As I told Chris uh, before we started, this is one book that I had not had to reread in anticipation of the episode because I've read this book so many times. I know portions of it by heart. Um, but I did go back and I did look over the annotations from the writers last night. There, there are some interesting little bits that you can glean from that as well. Something something that um, I believe is in the originals, and you can verify this for me uh, right now if you'd like, um, and something that as soon as I saw it, I said, aha, I'm going to poke the bear. We've mentioned this in a past episode, and it will come up again in a future episode, but Dave has a serious 
problem with a famous author and his two word uh, entries into each one of his chapters. And I've always found that to be kind of funny because it doesn't bother me, but hey, we all have our things. However, at the beginning of each of these chapters, uh, chapter one, old friends meet a rude interruption. So it kind of gives you a layout of what's coming in the chapter. And I got to ask you, Dave, does that bother you anywhere near as the two word introductions <laughs> to these chapters? Uh, no, no. In fact, I quite, I like it actually. And that's, you bring up a really good point because they're not just chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, etc. Not only does each chapter have like a little two or three sentence description, Sometimes it's just a one sentence description. Like I just arbitrarily opened it up to chapter nine, which is called flight with an exclamation point, the white stag. Um, Not only does it have that, but it has half page illustrations in black and white, like pen and ink illustrations. Mm -hmm. They're by an artist uh, named Dennis Bouvet. Some of them are like little masterpieces. (laughs) They're uh, from that particular one had the a unicorn picture of the unicorn on it um opening arbitrarily i've got a picture of a black dragon standing on a pedestal with a bunch of treasure below her another arbitrary one is a dragon man with wings and a a weapon in his hand oh this one's a a beautiful elven tower in a forest uh with a moon in, in the back background or maybe it's the sun it's hard to tell and the interior art, uh, which Dave was just referencing, is done by Valerie Valusek. Really? So, yeah, your, your interior I'm, art's different. Uh, well, that's what I'm. Uh, that's what I'm going to ask you because you mentioned that the black dragon is uh, uh, sitting on the stone with the treasure beneath it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have that, but that is the opening illustration where it says book one. That's all it is: is the dragon on the pedestal and the the treasure underneath and it says book one and chapter one is actually a picture of a goblin in the foreground uh with a hold of a sword all right so that's that's wrong that's not valerie velosek none of those you just described are now she is an artist for tsr she actually did the illustrations for uh legends i believe she did the half the chapter illustrations for the, the next trilogy, but these are definitely Dennis Bouvet. They're absolutely Dennis Bouvet style. And you can even see his initials. Like when you look at that first chapter illustration of the goblin. Um, yeah. It's down there by his foot. Bottom right. It says DB, right? Yeah. My eyes are old, but I, I picked out a DB you're correct. Yeah. I think pretty much every illustration in here has a DB. If you look hard enough. This is all Dennis Bouvet. It 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 attributes them to uh, Valasek. It says Stawicki is the cover artist. When I look at mine, it says um, cover art by Larry Elmore, interior art by Dennis Bouvet. Um, yeah, my, my cover has Flint in the foreground with Riverwind and Gold Moon behind him, and uh, Solace is back behind them in the background. Yeah, I think most folks who who are of like second generation. Uh, Dragonlance fans are going to be more familiar with the Stawicki covers, but they really should reissue them with the Larry Elmore covers because the Larry Elmore covers are just gorgeous. Um, yes, they are. 
yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm disappointed that, that when they released the hardcovers, it was the Stowicki covers. I've got nothing against Matt Stowicki. He's a great artist, but the Larry Elmore covers are just iconic for this series. Agreed. Let's talk about this book, Chris. So we open up um, the story with old friends reuniting after being apart for five years. They grew up in an area called Sol- Solace, a treetop town. All of the, the homes and the inns and the businesses are in these enormous Valenwood trees, these trees with enormous trunks, and they build all of their homes in the trees. The, the idea behind that was to keep them safe from uh, outlaws and raiders, but it's it's just one of those iconic fantasy settings, uh, Solace. Now, this is 351 years after a world-destroying cataclysm. This was a time of uh, like a golden age when the king priest of Istar, this this was an empire. This was a Rome like an em- uh, like a Roman emperor type figure, who called down uh, for the gods to do his will in eradicating evil from the world in his hubris instead of coming to help him the gods threw a fiery mountain down on the world (laughs) (laughs) the the fiery mountain destroyed the land reconfigured the land mass and for centuries afterwards there were plagues and suffering and droughts and famine etc uh, so the world is 351 years after this cataclysm, just sort of repairing itself. And since that point, the, there's been no sign of the gods. They threw the rock at the planet and they took off. When you relate it back to Dungeons and Dragons, there's no clerical magic. There's no true healing. The companions that are reuniting after being apart from each other for five years had left on a quest to find any sort of sign that of uh, the true gods returning to Corinth. There's always these rumors of the true gods or false gods. Um, there's always rumors of wars and armies massing and gathering. Um, so it's a time of a lot of uncertainty. We open up with the dwarf, Flint Fireforge. He's the grandfatherly figure of the, the story. Um, and he's joined very quickly by Tasselhoff Burfoot, who is a kender, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but for now, he is, consider him uh, kind of like a halfling or a hobbit. And the last member the in the first chapter is Tannis Half-Elven. Tannis is your classic point of view main character and he, he's the one through, through which we're going to see, or through whom, we are going to see most of the action in, in Chronicles. So let's go back and talk about Taz a little bit. Tasselhoff Burfoot is a kender. Now, in D&D, there are, this was not a race. Kenders new uh, to Dragonlance. And Chris, you want to tell us a little bit about what kender are? Well, Dave, David already alluded to a, a halfling hobbit type of uh, race. And that's it's very obviously the inspiration for kenders. Uh, however, this race is basically inspired uh, with wanderlust. They do not know fear. Situations where you would normally not want to poke your nose, that's the exact place they want to go. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. they are very, uh, very chipper, very... Uh, They're not, very don't aggressive. call them thieves. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, they are, they are light-fingered. Um, yeah. However, they do not 
acknowledged their light fingeredness as thievery, and they will be very upset if you were to to uh, accuse them of such. They are finders of lost things. Um, it's it's interesting when they created the Kender. Um, they were they were on the fence as to whether or not to include all the races in a standard D and D party. When halflings came up, they're like, "Yeah, let's do halflings." And other people are like, "Now nah, halflings are they've been too hobbit too hobbity." So they decided, "Well, let's let's make them." Because um, usually in D and D, the halflings were the thieves of the party, so they needed somebody to kind of fit that role. But Tracy Hickman really objected to having a race of characters that were just thieves, so it created this this childlike, absent-minded, acquiring, borrowing nature of the Kender, where they'd become so fascinated or interesting with the, the next sparkly object or thing of interest that they would acquire it. They would promise to give it back later, always think in the back of their head they're going to return it. Kender have been kind of a fun character. Uh, but Tassel of Burfin in particular has been a f- fan favorite in Dragonlance. Oh, yeah. I mean, very, very irrepressible. I wouldn't necessarily say empathetic, but he he certainly seems to have a lot of love for the people that he's with, and I think that's part of the character of, of Tasselhoff. Now, whether that goes along with the rest of his race, I'm not sure, but he's definitely adventuresome. Always tells stories. He loves maps. Uh, he's a, he's got a, a case full of maps. Uh, some of them, uh, as a matter of fact, I forget exactly how they, they described it, but Tannis asked him for a map and he Tasselhoff opened up his case and had maps that were written on horse hide and palm leaves and old parchments and bits and scraps of things, just very grand maps and very, uh, you know, is that really a map? But he loves his maps. The problem with Tasselhoff's maps is that some of them are old and they date before the cataclysm when the landmass was changed. <laughs> so, okay. So we've got these three characters. They meet on the road outside Solace uh, with the intention of joining up with the rest of their, their companions. And they're interrupted by a group of goblins. Um, and we are introduced here to um, the Fewmaster Toady who is a hobgoblin who demands the return of the blue crystal staff. And they don't know what that is, but the the goblins and the hobgoblin, the Fewmaster, sends the goblins to attack them and kill them for it. And it's kind of a cool scene because, you know, Tannish just sort of whips back his cloak and takes out his sword or whatever. (laughs) Flint rosins up his axe and and, uh, the um, shot first. Right, right. And uh, so there's a quick scuffle outside of Solace, and um, it ends in a bunch of dead goblins and the few master riding away, deciding discretion is the better part of valor. Then we get our introduction to the treetop town of Solace and the iconic setting of the Inn of the Last Home, which is where all of the companions agreed to meet. And they show up at the inn and, oh, you know what, Chris, we actually should mention that there's a prologue to the book yeah there is yeah and act and the the prologue to the book takes place before the chapter one that we just talked about at the end of the last home where one of the where the barkeeper and her and his um protege one of the waitresses her name is tika encounter an old man who shows up and he's arranging the the seating in the bar because there's going to be a party tonight, the likes of which the world hasn't seen since the cataclysm. And now here we are in chapter two, 
with Tannis, Flint, and Taz heading to the inn to meet up with the rest of their companions. And when they show up, there they are sitting in the seating that the the old man arranged for them. And it's uh, Caraman and Raceland, right? So why don't you tell us a little bit about Caraman and Raceland, Chris? Caraman uh, and Raceland are twins. Uh, and I would say they are fraternal if you were to actually look at the two of them because they um, are complete opposites. Caraman is, for lack of a better way to describe him, he's a Conan stand-in. He's just this great, big, beefy dude, not real smart, always looking for a scrap, always hungry. But his twin, Raceland, is a mage. And it's pretty obvious that he's a powerful guy just from his look. He's very small and thin. Um, he has uh, he wears robes, which he uh, you know keeps tightly about, around him. What um, color are his robes? Uh, his robes are red. And that and means something specifically, right? It does mean something specifically, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, Kryn happens to have three moons. And they are, let's see, it's Lunatari, Lunatari, and... Yeah, and what's the other one? Is it Solitari? Yeah, the white. that's right. Silver. Okay, right. and they they vaguely resemble law, neutrality, and evil. It's not something that's apparent immediately, but as we go through the story, we will find that those things have uh, significance, which is what Dave was alluding to with Raceland's red robes. So, so a wizard uh, of the red robes has um, allegiance to the the red moon and to the like the the neutrality version of of uh, spells and magic. Right, exactly. Whereas the Wizard of the Black Robes would have allegiance to the Black Moon and um, like the evil side of, of the art of magic. And, and Raceland is wearing his red robes. Uh, and Caramon is very protective of his brother for many reasons, not the least of which is because of uh, Raceland's physical frailty. Whereas uh, Caramon has all these muscles, uh, Raceland has the brains and he's got them in spades. Uh, which, of course, is mostly the reason why he is a magic user. When the uh, companions come in and meet him, they see that uh, he has changed in his uh, five years away from uh, the company. His face is now has a golden pallor to it, and his eyes are, the blacks of his eyes are no longer irises, but they are hourglass. Thank you. Holy smokes. So now (laughs) his pupils are hourglasses. Uh, he's always been deferred to by those in the party as, as a powerful kind of a guy, but Raceland is very, uh, he's, he's soft-spoken, uh, he's always in pain, he's always cold, and Caramon, because that's his twin, uh, feels very protective of him. The thing about Raceland is he's, he's got this real sarcastic, bitter attitude, right? Um, he was the person who was bullied as a kid and always had to rely on Caraman to stand up for him and to protect him. And this is exacerbated by the fact that he is he took his test of high sorcery. Uh, and he took it at a very at a, at an age younger than most mages are allowed to take it as a concession to his growing 
strength and power and magic. Uh, but it ruined his health, and something happened at that test that he doesn't quite understand. Uh, turned his skin gold, and it gave him these hourglass-shaped pupils. And not only are they different shapes, but Raceland sees differently. He doesn't see like anybody else does. When he looks at things, he sees everything withering and dying. This was Raceland is not your average wise wizard. He has got a darkness and an ambition to him that really made him stand out. And he he's got he's one of those characters that is a cult following in fantasy fiction. He, most people who read Dragonlance, Raceland tends to be their favorite character. Which, by the way, Chris. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. We get there. Yeah. All right. So they're they're waiting in the inn, and they're they're greeted by. Uh, the Tika Whalen, the the barmaid, and she turns out to be um, someone that they knew. She was just a kid when they left, and now she's grown up, and she is a young woman. And you know, Caraman kind of has the eyes for her a little bit there, and because um, she's turned into a very beautiful young woman. <laughs> um, Indeed, and and, and I'm, I'm going to interject really quickly. They all grew up in Solace. That's well, this, is, Car- this is really a homecoming for them. Yeah, Caraman and Raceland. Grew up in Solace, and a character we have not yet met grew up in Solace, but Tannis grew up in the Elflands. Well, yes, and but Flint was uh, the the forger of Solace, and Tannis was always right. Yeah, so yes, but yes, that's how they know each other. Yes, they all met there. Mm They're they're shocked by Raceland's appearance, and you know Tannis is very concerned. They the another member of their party shows up, uh, and this is a a man in fancy armor with a with a beautiful ornate sword and breastplate, and he comes in escorting uh, two plainsmen, um, and he lets them kind of go about their business as he gets them into the inn into safety. And then he comes over and he greets them. And is this guy is Sturm Brightblade. And Sturm Brightblade is he's got the big the mustaches, the handlebar mustache uh, that you could see on the cover of the original edition. And Sturm Brightblade is a knight of Salomnia. Chris, you want to tell us a little bit about Sturm Brightblade and we mentioned earlier that this was a marriage of Dungeons and Dragons and storytelling, and we had said that you could sometimes even hear the dice rolling uh, as you were reading it. With the descriptions of the characters, you could also pretty much pick out what class they were. For instance, you know, Flint being a dwarf, uh, so he's a fighter. Caramon, you know, he's a fighter. Raceland, he's a magic user. Uh, but we're talking about Sturm here. Sturm is very obviously a paladin. It's in his bearing, it's in his rigidness uh, to, you know, never run from a fight or turn down anyone who is in, uh, who is in need, which is actually uh, how the two characters that came in with him uh, become part of our little story because he found them outside of town. And, and once they explained what was going on, he said, you know, come with me to meet my friends. Right. Um, Sturm is from a place in Ancelon, which is the name of the continent, called Salomnia. Uh, this is a kingdom, an area that is no longer as respected as it used to be. The knights are in disrepute because they were unable to stop the cataclysm or save any of the people. Mobs rose up against the knights and threw them out of their castles. And uh, Sturm is one of those refugees. His, uh, his father's lands were 
taken over by the mob and he and his mother fled to solace and Sturm during the, the five-year hiatus when they went off to find signs of the new God, the, of the old gods, uh, Sturm came back to solace with his father's breastplate and sword and news that his father was probably killed by the mob. And uh, that was the only inheritance Sturm was going to get. And, and the thing about the Knights of Salamnia is that they live by um, two things, the code and the measure. The code is a simple phrase in old Salamnic. It's est salaris othmithus, which translates to my honor is my life. And that, if you boil down Sturm Brightblade into anything, is he lives by the code. My honor is my life. The measure is a much longer series of prescriptions that govern the life of a knight of Salamnia from uh, how he has to conduct himself um, every day to how they tax and rule and et cetera. It's, it's a stretches to like 12 volumes or something like that. It's ridiculous. And it, it, the fact that it's so long and ridiculous actually plays a part in the, the corruption of the knighthood and the eventual redemption of it. But we'll talk about that when we get to the second book. Before, before you go on, Dave, and you can edit this out if you so choose, but um, the title of the series is Dragonlance. This is the whole point about this. And it, I yeah. thought my, this might not be a bad place to maybe introduce Huma and the Dragonlances. So before the book even starts, it begins with something called the Canticle of the Dragon, which is a it's just poetry written by a man named Michael Williams. And it tells the story of Huma Dragonbane, who was a figure in ancient days that rode a dragon into battle and banished the Queen of Darkness and her shrieking hosts from Kryn. It, it's actually pretty good. It's very Homeric in the way it's presented, and that um, this is ancient history of these series of wars uh, against dragons and the queen of darkness who is always one of the old gods who always tries to assert her dominance over the world and she's constantly opposed by the gods of good and so the story of Huma or Huma is that he was a knight of Salamnia who went on a quest and through sacrifice was granted the dragon lance and that was a magical artifact that he used to to drive the dark queen back into the abyss. Dragons are now regarded as creatures of legend. Huma was just a fairy tale, and dragons are just myths. And this this all happened a thousand years before the events of the story. And it's I mentioned it at that point only because that kind of gives you an idea of what Sturm is trying to live up to. Right. He's trying to live up to Huma. I mean, he was a knight of Salamnia. He was the knight of Salamnia. If there was any representation of what a knight is, it's Huma. And that's yeah. what Sturm himself is trying to live up to in that code. So Yeah, right. That's a it's that's a great point, Chris. He is sort of a I always regard Huma as sort of like a King Arthur figure, a once in future hero. And Sturm is sort of like that that second coming of Arthur or Huma. Um, and, you know, one of those interesting little things that I, I was mentioning that you get from the annotations in that annotated chronicles I was showing you is that the original name for Sturm Brightblade was Santos Silverblade. Santos Silverblade. Saint Silverblade. Yeah. Doesn't quite fit him uh, as, as well as Sturm, like Stern or Solemn. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think what they finally came up with is is much better. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the names are are supposed to 
evoke those feelings. Like Sturm is stern, Salamnia is solemn. In fact, the names of Caraman and Raislin uh, were created by Harold Johnson as shorthand for caring man and wasted man. I did not know that. That's very interesting. Yeah. And a lot of the names they take from like world history, the general area that they're currently adventuring in, Abyssinia, is an old name for Ethiopia. Tanis, Tanis Half-Elven, the main character, is Tanis was a city in North Africa, in Egypt. Not all of these were just sort of you know, created, picked out of the, the, the ether somewhere, plucked out of a history book. <laughs> There's more examples, and we'll pick them out as we go. Okay, so we've got him in the inn, and the um, the old storyteller that was arranging the chairs, he's there. The two plainsmen, are uh, they're tired, but and they just want to be ignored. Um, and there's a lot of talk in town about the, the seekers. Seekers are these um, this new religion. They're called seekers because they're seeking after new gods. And they're asking about the blue crystal staff as well. But the old man, the storyteller, makes the plainswoman come forward and sing a story, uh, sing a song. And it turns out that she's got a staff. Now, it looks like just a plain unadorned wooden staff. There's something about this couple that's not quite normal. And it turns out that's because the staff that she's got is indeed the blue crystal staff that the goblins were looking for. And that comes out because um, one of the, the seekers is in the bar and he he's kind of drunk and he starts an altercation that ends up in himself getting burned and healed by the woman with the blue crystal staff. After his hand gets burned in the, the fireplace, she touches his hand to the staff to his hand, and he he's healed. Um, so he knows he's now got the blue crystal staff. Before we go on, I should say that we haven't talked a lot about Tannis Half-Elven yet. Tannis is in town hoping to find not just the people that he's already reunited with, but one other person. Uh, and Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit about the person that Tannis was hoping to find, one of the companions that did not show up for the reunion? Well, her name is Kitiara, and she is the half-sister of Karaman and Raislin. Uh, she is a mercenary, and she is human. And Tannis is in love with her, and he had hoped that she would be there uh, so that he could profess his love uh, as I guess there was some point of uh, maybe I do, maybe I don't before they had split up five years ago. Uh, but now he's come to his decision. He wants to see Kitiara so he can say, hey, it's okay that you're human. Um, I still love you. We're going to go do this thing together. And uh, she does not come. As a matter of fact, uh, Tika gives him a letter uh, that was delivered to her by a hooded stranger who said to give the message to Tannis. And of course he opens it and he reads it and he finds out that Kitiara is not coming. She's serving a new Lord says, yes, this is a theme that's extended all through dragon Dragonlance. Tannis is, is sort of divided. He's a half elf. Uh, the whole time his heart is sort of pulled in two different directions. One towards his elven side, one towards its, his uh, human side. Kitiara represents that yearning towards the human side of his nature. There's someone else that's going to represent the yearning towards the elven side of his nature as well. Um, and then when I say we, this is a theme that's extended throughout is this theme of balance, this theme of good, evil, 
and then neutrality to kind of balance it out. And you see this with the moons, the silver, the red, and the black moon. You see this with the three robes of magic, the three pantheons of gods, and embodied directly in the turmoil in Tannis' own character arc as well. Okay, so the companions sort of feel, because Sturm helped them, uh, the plains people, they sort of feel responsible for getting these plainsmen out of the inn and out of town. Yeah, um, because the, the seeker being set on fire and running off calling for the guards now necessitates they got to get out of there. Yeah, and I thought it was kind of spiteful what he did after he was healed. Stuck his hand back in the flames. Right. So he was he was healed by the the blue crystal staff, and he was and he couldn't deal with that. He I don't know. He just thought that was witchcraft or something. So he put his hand right back in the fire and burned it again. And that's when he ran out, calling for the for the guards to come take the plains women. Who are these plains people, by the way, Chris? Uh, they are uh, Riverwind and Gold Moon. Uh, she is known as Chieftain's daughter. Uh, they are tribesmen of the plains, and she she's very beautiful. And Riverwind is her love. He is a base person as far as uh, their tribe is concerned. She is a chieftain's daughter. He was just some dude, you the know, shepherd. of the tribe. Yeah, he was. He but they loved each other. And in order for Riverwind to have any kind of Congress with Goldmoon, uh, Goldmoon's father, uh, the chieftain, sent Riverwind on basically, he basically said, go find me proof of the old gods. Go find me this, and then I will let you have my daughter. You know, I will let the two of you be together. And Riverwind went off on a very long journey uh, of many years while Goldmoon stayed at home and kept the faith and took on more responsibility as her father got ill. Uh, and Riverwind finally comes back. He's got what we find out to be is the blue crystal staff and gives it to Goldmoon. And it, it, it's, it actually transports them to the edge of Solace and which is where Sturm finds them. So they're actually kind of blinkered by what exactly has just happened because a minute ago they were just on the plains and now they're sitting in this you know vast forest of huge trees and here's this very stern looking armored man who you know offers to help them. So they're they're very confused and very weary uh, as they are in the uh, in the end of the last home. Yeah, Goldwyn's story is the story of this book. This this looking for and finding restoration of the old order, the finding of the true gods and bringing them back into um, the fight on Kryn. It's very Tolkien-esque, this restoration. Weiss and Hickman make no bones about they studied Tolkien before they plotted out these books. They talk about going to a lecture at Marquette University where the Tolkien manuscripts are. You know, they went back and they looked at um, The Lord of the Rings again. And in fact, there's there's a lot of similarities in Dragonlance, uh, between Dragonlance and Lord of the Rings. Riverwind bringing back the the blue crystal staff is the start, is the impetus of this of this story, right? Okay, so the companions escape uh, the end. They go out through the kitchen. They slide down uh, the the rope and the hole in the floor of the kitchen, 
and um, they get out and they what happens from here is they decide that they are going to escort Gold Moon and Riverwind to safety. That's because Sturm as a knight feels responsible for doing this. There's a there's a woman to protect. Um, so he's got to go along and do it. In fact, that's how they get Sturm to leave the inn actually is one of the best lines in this part of the book where the guards are they're they're in the the inn there's a big uproar the guards are getting ready to burst in at any moment and somebody says to Sturm come on we got to go we got to run and Sturm calmly is sitting there drinking his ale and uh he says run from this rabble (laughs) So it gives you some insight as to how how Sturm's mind works and what he's capable of. Um, it's only when I think it's Tannis says that there's a there's a lady to protect that he gets up and he says, "Okay, let's go." During during the course of their escape, they find out that this plainswoman Gold Goldmoon has this staff that was taken from um, a city where death flew on. Black Wings, uh, which is all that Riverwind remembers about it, and that it has provided true healing now, not just to the Seeker, whose name was Hedrick, the High Theocrat of Solus, uh, but also to Tannis, because when Tannis slid down the rope to escape the inn, he got some pretty terrible rope burns. Goldman touched him with the staff and healed him, so he experienced firsthand that this was true healing from the gods. Um they very quickly escape town. They go out uh, out of town by the, the the lake. They're pursued by the goblins. They get into a skirmish with the goblins. At one point, they're getting into boats to escape, and Flint almost separates from them because Flint won't go in the boat. He he's had a bad experience the last time he was in a boat. I guess he got dunked in the water by Caraman, and uh, he won't do it. But eventually, he comes running out of the woods with a bunch of goblins at his butt. Kind of like Indiana Jones when he's getting friggin' followed by all the the natives coming out of the woods. <laughs> That's exactly what that reminded me of. That first scene <laughs> in Raiders where he's running out of that temple towards the the seaplane, and he's he's got the, yep. the tribe of natives behind him. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, so anyway, they get in the boat and they camp out that night under the stars. Except Raceland looks up and he notices something different about the sky. That's really foreboding. And Chris, what does he find up in the sky that gives him such fear and pause? Well, actually, it's a lack of something in the sky. Uh, mm-hmm. The um, the constellations for the gods have now disappeared uh, from the sky. The true gods, you know, Paladine and um, Tachesis and whatnot. Uh, and of course, he is he is most alarmed that the constellation for Takesis, the the Dragon Queen, uh, has disappeared from the sky. So, the constellation of the the Queen of Darkness and the constellation known as the Valiant Warrior, Paladin, have both disappeared. Uh, there's holes in the sky now where there those stars should have been. That's a terrifying thought, especially for people that don't have a concept of science. Um, even more so for those that do, frankly. <laughs> and they're, they're not really sure what to do with the Blue Crystal Staff. So their first thought is they're going to take it to this, the Lord City of Haven to find out what the, the, the Council of High Seekers think is best to do with it. Um, so they start going in that direction um, until they are 
they encounter a party of hooded and robed clerics. And there's something that's just a little off about this um, this party of clerics that they encounter. They they kind of send, is it Sturm, I think they send out to talk to them and find out what's the deal with the clerics? It's, it's Stur- Sturm and yeah. Caramon go. Uh, Sturm it's actually, and it, yeah, Sturm and Caramon, yes. Yeah. So they go out to, to kind of find out what's going on there. And it, there, there's a like a, a menace to them in some way because their hands are wrapped in bandages or you can't see their faces or anything. Um, and it turns out that they've they're they've got a cart that they're hauling a sick one of their sick brethren with them, and they're taking him to be healed somewhere. Um, and the reason why the this particular monk or cleric is sick is because their holy artifact has been stolen. A blue crystal staff has been stolen from them, and it's the only thing that could heal their comrade. And hiding in the bushes the rest of the companions hear this and gold moon who's compassionate jumps out and says okay i'm i'm gonna help you let me see this your your sick brother and they they see her and they see that she's got the staff and they take her back and she peels back the the blankets that are covering and it's this creature of horror that jumps out at her chris you want to tell us about this these creatures in this fight it's uh something that they've never encountered before they are scaly clawed um beings who have human shaped faces uh but are you know reptilian in in visage and in body as well um did you just say visage I, i did yes (laughs) <laughs> like, 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 is it, like something stuck in a vice well what do you say visage <laughs> i've just never heard it pronounced visage before really how do you pronounce it visage visage really yeah, yeah. okay i always b-r-a-z-i-e-r i always said brazier and somebody's like no man that's brazier really okay well you know well it's brazier when it's a something you light on fire but it's yeah well you can light it's a brazier on fire too right <laughs> true true and then we did that a lot <laughs> in the 70s yeah. 60s man yeah, yeah, so yeah. guys were burning their draft cards and they were burning their bras <laughs> tell, tell me about um, their their, their uh, vices <laughs> <laughs> sorry no that's okay that's quite all right um so anyways, they, they jump out and uh, the, the creature jumps out and Goldmoon is startled. Uh, and of course, Riverwind hears that and he wants to get involved in this because now she's in danger and she's swinging the staff back and forth. And it's, it's sparking blue and holding these creatures at bay. Um, and Sturm and Caramon, they are alerted by her screams, and of course they draw their weapons, and they start to fight these creatures and whatnot. No, Sturm that ends up striking the first blow uh, against these uh, creatures, and when he sticks his sword into the creature, it dies. However, Sturm cannot take his sword out of the creature because it has since turned to stone. Now you have different difficulties in fighting these things because you cannot get your weapons out after you stick them with them 
they uh, they do eventually vanquish the uh, the the reptilian type creatures. These these dragon men, they're new. They've never seen anything like them on Kryn before. It uh, kind of goes hand in hand with the rumors they've been hearing about chaos and war and destruction coming from the north. Like you said, they 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 win this fight, uh, but Sturm is wounded. He gets a cut on his head, and he's bleeding pretty profusely. And at this point, the Blue Crystal Staff is out of charges. It can't. It's it temporarily can't heal you. And they, as the fight's wrapping up, these dragon men who turn to stone in death eventually crumble. So they're able to get Sturm's father's sword back. Um, and as they're fleeing, they see more figures coming, kind of floating down from the sky. I think they they describe them as um, uh, as dropping down from the from the sky. I believe. Um, I'd like to actually get that passage because I think it's actually kind of a cool passage. Give me a second here. And by the way, during the course of this fight, we 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 get some examples of the language of magic. So. Uh, that Raceland uses to cast spells. I think he tr- he discovers that. Um, he, I think he tries to cast um, like fireball or magic missile or something. No, it was sleep. Was it sleep? I think that's yeah. later. I think that's you sure. Well, I think no, was because at the, at the shore when they were getting on the boats, he, he oh right, cast right. sleep on the the goblins and it took effect. And he did the same exact thing against the the dragon right. men, and it seemed to affect them just for a second, and then they shook it off and went on. So Raceland was like, oh, shit, I'm not going to be any use here. You guys have to clean this up yourself. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but the, the the language of magic is kind of cool. Like here, an example of it is uh, when Raceland is casting uh, a spell, he says, Kertangus Myopiar, which is um, a form of pidgin Indonesian. Um, this is... Um, the, the the base language for a lot of magic and literature always tends to be like Latin, right? But Tracy Hickman was a uh, a Mormon missionary who went to Indonesia, and he came back with a lot of uh, with an understanding of the language of Indonesia. So he based the language of magic based on those Indonesian words. So I, I if I recall correctly from the annotated chronicles, you could actually. Uh, um, translate the words that Raceland uses into specific commands, like you, you go to sleep now, would be what those words of the sleep spell are. <laughs> well, one of one of the things that uh, always intrigued me, but never actually came into play—at least none of the groups that I was ever in—there mm-hmm. um, are three components generally for a spell: verbal, somatic, and material. And not all spells have all three components. <laughs> But again, as we were saying earlier, you can almost hear the dice rolling. This this actually has the material component of sand, which is yeah. what Raceland sprinkles out of his hands as yeah. he's saying the words. So there's yes. a verbal and a material. So yeah. if you check the spell descriptions in uh, any of the spells for any of the editions, you'll see that that is actually the material and it has a verbal component. So, yeah, I mean, it's right. really in the weeds if that's where you want to look. Yeah, it's cool. It's the fidelity to the game in the book is kind of fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they, they've got to run because Tannis caught glimpses of the road. A shiver ran through him as he saw dark winged forms floating to the ground about a half a mile away on either side of them. The road was cut off in both directions. They were trapped unless they escaped into the woods immediately. 
That they do. Were you reminded a little bit of Mirkwood in Darkenwood? Mirkwood from The Hobbit. For I know you know that, Chris, but yeah. <laughs> there may be some listeners um, out there who, who, who don't know that off the top of their head. It was actually kind of a melding of not only Mirkwood, but because it was, uh, as we shall see shortly, um, it also reminded me of the Paths of the Dead. Okay, yeah, that's that's a very good point and very apt as well because uh, not long after getting into Darkenwood, uh, they encounter these spectral forms who are warriors. There's a reason why they go into Darkenwood because Sturm yeah. in his uh, and no one else can see the white stag except for Sturm, and he says, "I'm going to follow that stag." Right, right. Why is this significant? Well, one is because that's also how Huma was uh, initially led to where it is that he needed to go. Yeah. And the other is? Uh, because they spotted uh, White Stag and Mirkwood when Thorin and company were going through it. Um, they they were out of food. They were thirsty. They were hungry. They wanted something to eat. So Thorin shot at a White Stag. And he missed it. But it was... Uh, Shortly after he saw the white stag, that they went off the path and they saw the party of the wood elves and tried to charge the party of wood elves too. So the white stag shows up in Mirkwood and the white stag shows up in Darkenwood. The difference between the two is that in Darkenwood, the white stag is leading a hero to a specific destination for a, a good reason. Um, and there's actually like Celtic legends about white stags leading heroes where they need to go. Um, so there, there's a tradition at play here, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, so the, and that's when they encounter, they, once they've camped for the night, they've, uh, Raceland stays on the road because he's like, you know, forget it. I'm not, I'm not stepping off the path here. But they're like, oh, it's just a little way off the, off the road race. Why don't you come sit by the fire and, drink some water or something. He's like, eat nothing, drink nothing in Darkenwood. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to stay here. And shortly after he does that, that's when those spectral minions show up. And you, you made a, an interesting comparison to the um, Paths of the Dead in Lord of the Rings. You want to speak a little uh, to that? Uh, yeah. What ends up happening, I mean, for anyone that doesn't know, we'll, we'll go to Lord of the Rings first. In order for Aragorn to uh, arrive in the nick of time to save Gondor, he actually has to take the paths of the dead. The dead are oathbreakers uh, who uh, had given their oath to Gondor to come to their rescue, and uh, they decided, screw that, man, I ain't doing none of that. So they are cursed for eternity to hold tight for the, the return of the king, basically, you know, because he holds their oath. So when Aragorn goes through the paths of the dead, that is the person that they've been waiting for. When we get into Darkenwood, <clears throat> excuse me, Raceland uh, says that I am going to speak to them. And he casts a spell and the spectral host parts and this really, you know, scary looking dead specter comes up and starts to speak through Raceland. And it basically follows the same pattern. We are oath breakers. We are, you know, we're, we're here to, to specific place within two days to receive the greatest gift given to the world. 
and, and there's some interesting things that happen. So the, the forest master gives them an opportunity to rest and feeds them, uh, gives them water, gives them, uh, you know, lets them take a nap, that kind of thing. Um, but when, uh, as they haven't eaten in a long time and they sit down to eat at this feast and, you know, Caraman's eating. It's like, he's got a roast and it's dripping off the bone. And he's eating any, and, and then all of a sudden he, he like, realizes that he's eating meat and he turns to the the forest master he's like oh sorry this must have been like a relative of yours or something <laughs> and, uh, and the forest master says um to caraman says to the party really that you know don't don't mourn for the person or the creator creation who has fulfilled their purpose in life sometimes that purpose is to be a sacrifice I'm paraphrasing, but that's more or less what she's telling them. And as she's saying that, it, these are like words with like a lot of weight to them. Sacrifice and redemption and purpose are all major themes that will continue to kind of show up in these books. So kind of keep that in the back of your of your head as we're going through these. So, okay. So they, uh, they say, well, we, well we're never going to get to Zaxaroth. Zaxaroth is the, uh, the place that they've got to get to within two days to receive the greatest gift given to the world. And man, the ego on this shining being to say this is the greatest gift given to the world. <laughs> okay, so uh, they say, we're never going to get there. She says, don't worry about it. Uh, I've got these uh, winged horses. So <laughs> these these Pegasus. I was pretty sure you were going to say flying monkeys. But then <laughs> I... I... <laughs> so these, these winged horses show up and... Um, they get on and they they take off in the middle of the night and you know there's there's a great picture in the first calendar that we were talking about the Dragonlance calendar from 1984 of gold moon sitting on a pegasus holding up the blue crystal staff it's, it's a really cool picture <laughs> that particular picture was done by Clyde Caldwell um so they um they get on the pegasus pegasi pegasuses pegasi and uh, they're pegasi. They're flying over the, the, the idea is to fly out of the uh, forest, over the plains, over the mountains, and into Saxaroth. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the Pegasus, Pegasi aren't able to get them that far because there's something scary going on. Um, and when the companions wake up, they're on the ground and the flying horses are leaving. Um and it's it's basically like a nightmare scenario as to what happened. And Chris, you want to tell us what happened on the plains? When the companions wake up that morning, it's Tannis that's up first. And the Pegasus tells them, you know, I've sent everybody else home. I stayed until you guys woke up. And we got to go because, you know, we can't take you the whole way because there's something truly evil in the wind. And you're just going to have to hoof it from here. So as Tannis is sitting there absorbing that information, he notices that there are three columns of smoke coming from the east, which is the direction they need to travel. They realize that uh, the columns of smoke are actually coming from the village that Riverwind and Goldmoon are from, Kyushu. Uh, and they take off in that direction and find that there's carnage just smoking ruins and the the 
odd thing about the smoking ruins is, and I thought this was kind of incongruous, to be absolutely honest with you. There's actually a few things in the book that, you know, they would mention there's always a convenient forest to run away into and, uh, you know, something like that. But this was one of the things that struck me. Not that it's bad, anything, just kind of weird. Uh, but apparently these plains people who live out on the plains have stone buildings. Now, they had to put stone buildings in there in order to make the horror be what it was because the, the stone buildings themselves, they are described as as if they had liquefied and run and rehardened. Hmm. You know, so these are just misshapen, you know, blobs of, of, of rock. And of course, the plainsmen are devastated and they blame themselves for starting all of this. And, and it just, it's, it's a nasty, nasty scene. Do, do they, does Goldmoon actually find her father like burnt up and charred up? I don't remember. Is that? Um, no, but they do. Tannis uh, hears like a, a sound that he's trying to find the, uh, the reasoning for. And he well, she goes into the house. Her. Yeah. Yeah, and it turns yeah. out that someone has set a gibbet up in the middle of this, uh, the town hall, you know, the town square or whatever yeah. it was, and the pi- the pylons that are holding it up have been driven with force into the ground, so much so that they've cracked at the base, and there are three figures that are uh, gently swinging from these melted chains, um, and they are uh, they are hobgoblins. And there is a shield on the top and written in a crude common language. This is what happens to those who take prisoners against my orders. Um, signed, Verminard. Right. Yeah, exactly. And up to this point, we've not heard that name before. This is the first time. I don't know. I just thought that was kind of a cool name, too, Verminard. It's, it's descriptive. It's, um, and you can kind of see meaning in that name, too, Vermin. So somebody named Verminard caused this all to happen, right? Um, so it's Raceland that uh, convinces them all that, you know, we got to get going. We're on a timeline here. Something's going to happen in two days. And we've got to be able to, we got to be in Zaxaroth before then to get the greatest gift given to the world. <laughs> um, you keep coming back to that because. Um, it's a little important. Just a little important. Yeah. 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 Um, all right, so they they get back on the road and they could just make it if they hustle, um, and they're going they're traveling through um, this area of like really swampy marshland, and uh, they're ambushed, they're attacked by draconians again, and there's like a really cool set piece on a rope bridge that happens. We you know, we won't go into details of it, but it's it's a fun little fight scene. But at the end of it. Uh, most of them are are captured by draconians, a couple of whom are casting spells. Uh, I think, is it Web that they cast on the companions? Yep, Web and Sleep. Um, yep. But it's it's Taz and Flint who manage to escape. They're sort of knocked off the bridge and they fall into the, the swamp and they get away. I think Raceland is pretty hurt. He actually takes a poison dart and he's failing. Right. Like Karaman is about to lose his mind about this in this camp there's this uh huge it's a dragon yep. except this dragon is it's a statue it's made of wicker and woven grass to the draconians some of them think it's like an idol like a god of because uh, they worship the draconians 
are kind of like in a hierarchical society, right? The top of which is, are the dragons. Uh, we've not yet seen a dragon. This is our first example of what a, a dragon is, and it's not real. It's just a, it's a humbug. And we should also say at this point, dragon men, draconians, come in at least four different varieties, right? The ones that we've encountered are the Baz draconians. They're the, the smaller ones, the shock troops of the draconians. When I say smaller, they're man-sized. Some, the other ones are bigger. And when they die, they turn they turn to stone. But there are a, a form of draconian that are magic users. They're they're more proficient with magic. They're the ones that are running this camp, and they're the ones that capture the the companions. They're confused because all of a sudden, the the dragon that's made of wicker and leaves comes to life and starts talking and moving around and flapping its wings and <laughs> demands that the companions be brought. In front of them, and at this point, by the way, Karamit is almost bust. I think he's he's almost like bust out of that cage. Isn't he, he? He does he does break out of it. Yeah, he breaks out because it's a bamboo cage, and it, yeah, he was very easily able to get out of. But he he's been subdued by a bunch of draconians, and the dragon says, "Bring the warrior to me." The draconians drag Karamit up to the dragon, and Karamit thinks he's about to be eaten by this dragon the dragon says let his friends come join him so the rest of them are allowed out of their cage and the draconians think they're going to see a bloodbath in reality what happens chris the uh the dragon coming uh to life causes some serious confusion in the camp and they all start running willy-nilly because the dragon's not supposed to do that and it starts to flap its wings and uh, you know, make all these just horrible noises. And there are fires that have been started in the camp that the draconians have ignored up to this point. Um, because as the dragon is flapping its wings, these sparks from the, the fires closest to it have gone off into the camp encampment. And now it's started some fires in the buildings. And once the dragon rises up to the dragon catches fire, because, you know, wicker burns. Right, pretty easily. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a real dragon, obviously. There's something uh, yeah, going on exactly. there. Yeah. <laughs> so what ends up happening is is Flint clues in the companions uh, as they're being brought up to um, it's Tannis he finds as they're being led up to the dragon and says, "Look, the dragon is Taz," and Tannis is dumbfounded. He's like, "What the hell are you talking about? That's a dragon!" And Flint's like. It's Tasselhoff. Trust me on this one. He says, go get everybody's stuff and then make for the woods. Um, that That's that's exactly what happens. The companions go and they gather up all their things. They grab Karaman. Of course, Karaman wants to find out where Raceland is at. And they and Flint tells him, hey, Raceland and Goldmoon have made it to the woods. You know, they all just start booking off towards the woods. And now the dragon is on fire. Like, the wicker is burning very merrily. Flint is like, damn that, Kender. If if you burn up in that dragon, I'm going to kill you. So he goes booking back towards the towards the <laughs> dragon, trying to save his friend Tasselhoff while he's just muttering all sorts of horrible curses down on his head. They finally get up to the dragon, and they see uh, two little legs sticking out of the mouth of the dragon, clothed in blue pantaloons which happens to be Tasselhoff. And they're like, Taz, get the hell out of there. That's going to burn up. And he's like, I can't, I'm stuck. So Sturm 
takes the measure of the dragon, uh, the dragon's head, and decides, this is how I'm going to do this. And he takes, his, <laughs> he takes his sword and he measures off how far he thinks that Tasselhoff would be stuck in that dragon and hopes that he, Tasselhoff's arms are not up above his head because he takes that sword and he just chops the, the head <laughs> off of the dragon. And uh, Sturm and Riverwind stick an arm each in the eye holes and they pick up the dragon head and they, they start taking off towards the, the forest so that they can get the hell out of there with Flint just, you know, beating feet back behind them. But they yeah, do. They do eventually make it to the forest. The couple of things. I mean, this is this has got to be one of my favorite scenes in the entire trilogy. It's just a fun. It's a fun scene. It's exciting. It's dramatic. You, you don't know which way it's going to go. Uh, it's got a lot of humor, but it's got a lot of heart because uh, you, you really see how Flint cares for Taz in this. Um, uh-huh. They're always at odds. They're always bantering and yelling. Flint's always yelling at Taz, but you you, you get the impression that he's you know he feels more than um, aggravation. It's, it's quick and it's fun. Uh, Tannis blinked in disbelief. Then he heard a sound behind him that nearly made him leap into a tree in panic. He whirled around, heart in his throat, sword in his hand. Raceland was laughing. Tannis had never heard the mage laugh before, even when Raceland was a child, and he hoped he would never hear it again. It was weird, shrill, mocking laughter. Caraman stared at his brother in amazement, gold moon in horror. Finally, the sound of Raceland's laughter died until the mage was laughing silently, his golden eyes reflecting the glow of the draconian camp going up in flames. It's just, it's a funny scene. Even it got to Raceland even. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's fantastic because I believe they describe it as uh, Sturm and Riverwind running up there. Uh, from the viewpoint of Goldmoon and Raceland, all you can see is the two little legs, but they appear to be like a blue tongue coming out of the mouth right. of the dragon. So yeah. I think yeah. that's probably the, the ridiculousness of those big-ass warriors carrying this dragon head and the, the two little legs because you have to know Raceland knows that that's what that is. You know, yeah. so, yeah. and he's just laughing his ass off and it's disconcerting everybody. And this is an example of, again, how the game informed the events of the books, because as they were playtesting the first module, Dragons of Despair, um, this is how this happened in at their table that night. <laughs> so this, oh, this, really? this, right, it wasn't plotted specifically for the book. It came from an event that happened in the, in the playtest of the game. Awesome. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Those types of events didn't always happen. They didn't always take those events from the game to the book. There were some, like for instance, where Tannis does something and he, he's actually killed. The character of Tannis is killed. So that would have made a really short book. But... <laughs> First edition uh, AD&D was pretty brutal. It was very easy to kill characters. In that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we, we open the next scene with the companions crossing over into the, the ruined city. There's, they walk over a monument. It's, it's got something carved in it. And it's something along the lines of, you know, look at the city around you. It's the result of the blessings of the gods. I, when I read that, did that remind you of anything? Not especially, no. So when I read it, I thought of the poem Ozymandias. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. You, you know the one I'm talking about. Ozymandias is a poem uh, by 
uh, Percy Shelley. It's a short poem. It's like, I, you know, I could read it really quick. It's really short. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor, well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. But it's, I, you know, I, I took the time to read that because it fits sort of the theme of what's happening on Kryn right now and what happened with the king priest whose hubris called down the cataclysm. It's the thought that the works of man or mortals will stand the test of time and our rival to the gods. You know, when God, men plan, gods laugh. And in this instance, we know um, this was a monument standing in the desert uh, under the sand, half buried, long forgotten in a, in a wasteland. Um, the same thing with this monument in Zaxaroth as they walk into it. This was a city that was the jewel of their, their land and the jewel of their people. And now it's laid waste. It's on a cliff that's gradually falling into the sea. So there, there's this sense of the gods coming through um, and teaching a lesson here. The, as they start walking in, Riverwind has got a little of the heebie-jeebies because remember, all he can recall from uh, his his quest to find the sign of the true gods is that he was given the blue crystal staff in a city where death flew on black wings. And as they enter the ruins of Zaxaroth, things are starting to look familiar. Yeah, and they come up to the they come up to the well. It, it gets to be really scary for each of them. They, there's uh, there's a couple of draconians who they chase off, and two of them die. Two more of them jump into the well to get away because uh, they are outmatched. The companions think that they've gotten away with it, but they've just got this really, really bad feeling. And in the courtyard that they're in, there happens to be a set of, uh, I believe it's golden doors, that are off to the side and Goldmoon is drawn towards them just about at the same time that you learn those things, they are uh, assailed by pitch blackness. They cannot in any way, shape or form see anything through this. And they are just scared, just absolutely frightened. And this great rush of air and, and sense of mass comes up out of the, out of the well. And it turns out to be a real actual, dragon yeah it's it's a great scene uh there's a lot of tense foreboding that is built up they're just sort of walking around this deserted courtyard there's a well that's like chekhov's well sitting in the middle of the courtyard and then they look down the well and then there's this darkness drops all over the place like you said and something shoots up into the air and it's a dragon and it's the first time we see a dragon for real. And what is this? 180 pages into the first book. It's a brutal battle. Um, you know, the, see dra these dragons um, are D and D dragons. They are smart. They can speak. They have magic. They can cast spells uh, as point 
in fact, this particular dragon has just cast darkness. That's the MO of a black dragon. Uh, a dragon will cast darkness and then attack when its opponents can't see. And it's pretty nasty. He, he shoots up from the well and he attacks with his breath weapon, which is uh, Acid Splash. And he gets Riverwind. Um, and he all but kills Riverwind. The dragon is pretty happy. He thinks he's killed everyone. And he goes back into the well. And the, the, the spell is dispelled. And there, there's... Uh, the, um, and I, I don't know if this is the case with all D&D dragons, but it's certainly the case with dragons on Kryn, is there's something that goes along with them called dragon fear, is that whenever dragons are around, an irrational fear will seize those um, that see it or sense it. And so like the canyons have all like uh, scattered for the winds. They're only crawling out from their hiding places when the, the dragon leaves t- in time to see Riverwind hit full on with a splash of acid and he's just a bubbling skinless mass of nerves that's about ready to give up the ghost and gasp his last breath well thankfully even though there there are no true clerics on Kryn at this point there is still gold moon and she like you said had gone through these golden doors and has, has disappeared. So she wasn't there for the dragon attack and the companions, once they wake up and they see Riverwind in, in such pain are about to put him out of his misery. When gold moon calls to them to bring him to her. And it turns out that she's in a temple and um, she has had this encounter with a woman in bathed in blue light and um, a miracle happens. And, Gold Moon uses the power of this goddess to heal Riverwind and bring him back. Yeah, I, I mean, and this is another divine miracle. So this is another instance of what the companions have been searching for is this return of the true gods, right? Yeah. And by the way, remember, what, what is the name of that dragon? Because I, I always think it's kind of cool that uh, they get all the dragons in Kryn have two names. They have their common name that everyone knows them by, and then they have their true name. Well, I believe this one's common name is Onyx. And their true name is uh, Kisanth. Right. Yes, that's right. And you, you get a little of the internal monologue of Kisanth when she's attacking. You know, basically, she's a little annoyed that she's having to stay in this ruined city uh, and guard the, quote, treasure. Uh, she wants to be in the war. She's resentful of Lord Verminard, who is a human, um, who seems to be running the, the show for the evil forces. And that's one of the the things about the the evil forces, the forces of the Queen of Darkness, the dragon armies, is that they are led by humans or mortals anyway, non-dragons. And dragons are the the big the big guns that they bring in uh, to devastate towns and cities. And we'll see that used to great effect a little a little later. All right, so uh, they stay the night in the temple of Mishak of Mishakal, and that, that's who indeed who this old god is this true god her name is mishical she's a goddess of healing they find their way into the city at this point through the help of gully dwarves chris you want to tell us a little bit about gully dwarves uh yes they are the bottom rung of dwarven society uh the dwarves have no choice but to count them kin although they do so mighty reluctantly gully dwarves are kind of the um the poor relations and not only are they poor necessarily in 
the sense of they don't have lots of money or anything, but they are also poor in intelligence, hygiene, and various other things that you might consider to be of, uh, you know, lower uh, reputation. And they are, Flint looks down on them very seriously because he spent some time as the guest of, of some gully dwarves and he does not remember it fondly. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, is that they're, gully dwarves are kind of an an unfortunate creation, Uh, not in world. I mean, you know, that they felt the need to introduce a, a race of people who are just meant to be dumb and dirty. I don't know. It just it, it kind of it rubbed me a little the wrong way when I first read it, and now it's even more sort of icky. Uh, but <laughs> what's the saying now? It's aged like milk. Right. Yeah. Exactly that. You can't take them out because there is a significant gully dwarf character that has a huge impact on one of our companions, one of our main characters, uh, and her name is Poo uh, Poo. And she is a gully dwarf that Raceland befriends. And I think first he actually tries to charm her. Um, but even after the charm wears off, Bupu is someone who is uh, devoted to and in love with Raceland. The, the redeeming quality of gully dwarves, their presence in the story, I should say, is that it what it tells us about Raceland's personality, Raceland's character. Now, Raceland's a jerk. He's sarcastic, he's cynical, um, he's ambitious, he's greedy, he's selfish, he's uh, all, all these things, right? Um, but he also knows what it's like to be looked down on, to be bullied. So he has this compassion for the downtrodden that doesn't often come out, but it comes out when um, he befriends Bupu. She becomes sort of the catalyst for a, you know a lot of what is redemptive for Raceland. We'll, we'll see Bupu again, as I guess is what I, I'm saying. And it's, 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 uh, it's an introduction that it is, it is significant, but um, she leads them to, uh, through the city. Um, and there's like a cool, there's another cool set piece fight. Um, you want to describe the fight at the lift a little bit for us, Chris? Yeah. Um, we have entered the city basically at the top of Zach Sarath. And in order to get down into the bowels of the remnants of the city, uh, the inhabitants have put together a lift, which is basically two large pots used for lard rendering. And it's uh, put on a pulley system. And in order to raise the pots, the Draconians have corralled the gully dwarves into jumping into the pot, one pot, while whatever's on the ground gets in there and the gully dwarves, right. their weight finally brings uh, uh, the other pot up. So it raises raises the yeah. pot up and then they get to the bottom, they jump out and the pot comes back down. So it's a primitive order- elevator. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And the only way for the companions to get down is to be able to use that pot. What ends up happening is is uh, there's a, a large group of Draconians that are coming up whilst our intrepid band of uh, heroes is trying to get down. And there's just this massive fight that takes place uh, going up and down. Some of it's on the landing. Some of it's actually in the, the pots themselves. They're and jumping it, it's, back and forth. and the Yeah, swinging around. They almost yeah. knock over one of the pots. 
Flint gets stepped on in the bottom of the pot and you're almost <laughs> crushed by Caraman. You yeah. know, so it's pretty it's, crazy. But they do eventually make it down. This is one of the um, things that came from the playtesting. Uh, the scene is straight out of what happened at um, Tracy Hickman's home game. That's one of the ways in which uh, something fun and interesting came from it. Yeah, and it was it's a really neat scene. They, they wrote it really well. This is kind of the Indiana Jones portion of the story. Yeah. Which at the time, um, I'm not, was it, was it released then? When was Indiana Jones? Was it 82? Uh, 80, it came 80. out, I don't know, right, it was definitely before 84. A- anyways, uh, I, I mentioned that for several reasons, but yeah, it definitely had an Indiana Jones feeling to it. Return of the Jedi was 83, and the first Indiana Jones came out before Return of the Jedi. Right. So sometime between 80 and 83. They, they have some encounters in Zaxaroth, and most importantly, they encounter the, 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 the quote, king of the Gully Dwarves. He's the High Bulb, Fudge the First, um, and that's Fudge with P-H-U-D-G-E, Fudge the First. And um, they, they, uh, he tells them that there's sort of like a backdoor way to get to the dragon. And I remember, they're here to get the greatest gift given to the world, and in the temple they were told what this gift was. And I guess we should probably mention that now. The, 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 gist, the gift is something called the Discs of Michigal. Uh, and these discs have on them all of the, the information about the true gods, how to, who they are, how to worship them, what they represent. And now it's like a Bible, right? So the, great, the greatest gift given to the world is going to be the equivalent of the Bible. Now remember, Dragonlance is kind of told through the prism of Tracy Hickman's religious philosophy. And Tracy Hickman's a Mormon. There's a lot of resemblance between the the discs of Michigal and the discs of the angel Moroni, um, which were, if I'm getting this correct, um, that was what was given to Joseph Smith as the revelation of Mormonism in America. The, here, here is that connection. It's a yeah, pretty it's... straight one-to-one connection. Yeah. Um, so they know that they've got to get this treasure. The, the dragon is most likely guarding this treasure, but it's not the only thing that they want to take out of Zaxaroth. Raislin knows of something else that the last resting place was in Zaxaroth. And what is that, Chris? Uh, it is actually one of the early spell books of a mage by the name of Fistendantilus. And who is Fistendantilus? Do we, do we um, know, don't, don't do any spoilers, but do we, I don't think we really know anything up to this point too much about who he is. No, th- if I remember correctly, this is actually the first mention of who that is. Yeah. Um, however, the description of the spell book um, is, it, it's very, it's, I, you'll know it because it's because Karaman was asking Raceland, how am I going to know what it is? Because that was kind of, that was the secret side mission of yeah. going into the dragon's lair. And Caramon asked Raceland, how am I going to know what it is? And Raceland was like, look, there's not any way you won't know what this is. I mean, it gives off a cold radiance and it's cold to the touch. So, and it looks like one of my spell books, but you'll, you'll know it when you see it. Yeah. It's like dark blue leather bound with silver script on it. It's, it's really an evocative description, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so they're looking for the discs of Michigal. 
uh, Raceland wants to find the spellbook of Fist and Dantalus. Um, they're, they've got a backdoor uh, entrance to the dragon. They create a plan. We've gone from Indiana Jones to Mission Impossible at this point. So part of the plan is uh, Raceland goes in first and the others were to come in afterwards when the coast was clear, taunting them because he knows that he's got them right where they want them. Goldmoon's there. She's got the blue crystal staff. They're about ready to lose that. He's telling them to give up the staff. They'll uh, he'll take it to Lord Verminard, and wow. um, he'll be merciful. Um, so we got kind of a, a last stand situation developing here. You see, you know, Raceland is obviously hurt. He's near death. Caraman's freaking out because that's what happens when Raceland's in trouble. You get some inner monologue with Raceland here, where he is getting ready with a spell to go out in a blaze of glory uh, because he knows he's got the claw of the dragon hovering over him um, and he's going to be dead soon regardless. So he's going to go out with a, with a bang. And then he hears a voice in his head. That's not his, his own like inner dialogue. It's a different voice. It's an external voice. And that voice is like, all right, hold, hold on young mage. This is not your time to die. We'll, we'll see how this plays out. Right. Um, so there's something going on. This is your real first inclination that something's not quite right with Raceland, right? Yeah, absolutely. So how do they get out of this jam with the dragon? Not to put too fine a point on it, but it's basically divine intervention. Goldmoon is called to the fore to give up the uh, to give up the staff, and she chooses uh, Tannis and I think, is it just Tannis that goes with her? I, I don't remember. Sturm. Tannis and Sturm. Tannis and Sturm? Yeah. yeah. They they go they go with and accompany Goldmoon to give over the staff, and Goldmoon sets herself as the sacrifice, and she hugs her companions and basically whispers in Tannis's ear, "I got this," and yeah. then she goes over and hugs Hold Stern on. and says, "You know you you have given your oath uh, to protect me, and now I need you to trust what it is that I'm about to do." Yeah, she's. There's two other things she says. She spots the discs and she says, "Make ready to go grab them." And then she also says, "I think she says this to Tannis. You have to take care of Riverwind. He won't understand." So that's right. That's how. That's how you get this idea that this is about sacrifice. This is um, Gold Moon fulfilling her destiny. Um, and again, Indeed. we kind of go. We go back to what the forest master said in Darkenwood about uh, we do not mourn for those who die fulfilling their their destiny. Um, so that there is that foreshadowing there. So Gold Moon approaches the dragon. Uh, he's or she is gloating. Uh, Gold Moon raises the blue crystal staff like she's going to surrender it to Onyx. And then what does she do? But she ends up taking the staff and pointing it at the, at, at Onyx and this blue radiance just comes barreling out and envelops the dragon who yeah. realizes I have made a serious miscalculation. <laughs> yeah. She smashes that thing right up on him, <laughs> right on him. And there's this big, brilliant blue explosion. There's chaos all over the place as the dragon is devoured in blue light. The companions make a run for it. Um, Gold Moon is devoured by the blue light. Uh, Raceland staggers out of there, uh, but he's he's going crazy looking for 
uh, the spell book. He can't find it. Caraman pretty much has to pick him up and drag him out. Sturm, yeah, because the ceiling's coming down. The, the whole city is fixing to go under now, where it has perched for all these hundreds of years. It's, it's game over. It's coming down. Everybody needs to get out. Yeah. 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 She exploded that dragon. <laughs> Goldwood did. Uh, yes, she did. Yeah. Um, Sturm found the discs and they're just making a run for it. Um, and you know, the same, same thing with, uh, Riverwind, uh, go up in blue flame and he, he's not leaving. His life is over as he know, as he knows it. Um, and, and Tannis, the, only way, the only thing that gets him out is, is Tannis gets whacked in the head and Riverwind right. has to take him out. Right. So there again is that impulse to to sacrifice to serve so riverwind the only you're right the only reason riverwind leaves is because he's got to save tannis and tannis is one who's who he's grown to respect so there's another as they're escaping there's another really cool fight at the lift um with uh, the dragons and the gully dwarves all all around and they finally make it back up uh to the the, the level where the temple of uh Michigal is uh, as the temp- as the city of Zaxaroth slowly slumps off in- into the new sea, um, but as they get to the temple, we get a twist. Plot um, twist. Plot twist. And actually, before we get to that, Riverwind wants to kill himself, and he goes into the temple of Michigal to do that. And Tannis, who's still bleeding from the head because you know he had a rock fall on him, um, he's like, "No, this is." This is bullshit. We're not going to let him kill himself. He's Tannis is an elf. They revere life. There's no way he is going to allow a friend of his to, to take his life, uh, even if Goldmoon is his chieftain's daughter, his beloved, was killed. When he gets in the temple, he goes crazy. He's like, you people are bullshit. You say you're coming back into the world, and now you do this to us, and we've done everything you've asked us for. You're nothing. We don't want anything to do with you. And then what's he say? Gold Moon asleep, curled up at the feet of the statue of Mishikal. Yeah, so Riverwind has his Gold Moon again. It's not funny, haha. It's funny, though, that he was the one that was burnt and dead as he went into the temple at the beginning of all this. And as they yeah. come out, it's Gold Moon that is now at the feet of Mishikal after she has supposedly died as well. So they both died to do this, to bring these true gods back into the world. Yeah, and that's again, that's the whole message of this book is this search for the gods that return, a return to the true faith and truth of the world. That was done through the sacrifice of these two plains people, through Riverwind and and Goldmoon, as well as well as their entire peoples too. Not not for nothing. I mean, their entire tribe is wiped out. They're the last two. Yeah, Uh, you know, Riverwind and Goldmoon were the active seekers. They're the ones who gave their lives and were brought back. And there's some Christian analogies to to that, obviously, as well. And Goldmoon, at this point, she knows she has a mission. She is to take the discs of Mishikal to someone who will lead the people. And that's um, she, That's not her. Uh, she knows that. She is the, 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 the Aaron to the Moses, I guess. And um, to stretch the biblical analogies a little bit, she, she's got this religious message, this divine message that she's got to get in the right hands of someone who is going to light that spark of faith on Ancelon and 
be the catalyst for the return of the true gro- true gods across the continent. I don't know what's the best way to say it, but to prove to prove that what it is that she's saying is true, uh, when we see Goldmoon at the feet of Mishikal, we see that the staff has uh, rejoined the statue, but right. the beautiful necklace that uh, Mishikal was wearing when they came in at the beginning is no longer on the statue, but it is around the neck of Goldmoon. Yes, right, exactly that. Um, they no longer need the Blue Crystal Staff uh, because the power to heal is now in Goldmoon's own hands, um, as uh, evidenced by the amulet around her neck, the holy symbol. She is now a true cleric of Michigan. First, first human good cleric to be back into the world. Yeah, that is a significant. I, I appreciate the way you phrased that, because <laughs> we'll find out she is not the first human cleric to return. That's true. We'll, we'll, we'll meet one who came before her uh, in a little bit. So the one more uh, real significant thing happens before book one closes out. They fled the city. They're camp. They're on the. They're camped out the first night away. And um, Bupu, who is still with them, is sad. She's away from her people. Raceland knows he can't take her with him because they're going into danger and dark places. He wants to send her back to be with her her people. And he gives her a charm. He puts his hand on her head and gives her a blessing. And for what it's worth, that charm lasts all of Bupu's life. Um, She is protected and and taken care of for uh spoiler alert for you know everything that comes after uh but before he does that or after he does that at some point she gives him a gift what what is that gift it is a blue uh leather bound book with silver uh filigree and it's kind of cold and looks kind of a lot like what raceland was looking for in the dragon's horde yeah she found the spell book of Fist and Dantilus, and she gives it to Raceland. Yeah. So he's got what he came for. It ends on a book one ends on a very triumphant note for Raceland. But as the companions get up and head towards Sol- uh, Solace in the morning, they notice something very ominous on the horizon. Yes. Raceland was up first, and he was looking to the west. He finally realizes what it is that he's looking at. And it turns out that there's this huge cloud of smoke and they notice that uh, Solace, which happens to be to the west and the direction they're going, is burning. Yeah. And that's that's a cliffhanger way to end book one. But um, all right. So uh, unlike some of the other episodes where we felt we had to divide it into into two we we, we kind of went into this one knowing that we were going to this was going to be a two-part episode and this was this is i think is a good part this was the part where we were going to divide this so um we'll uh take up the story of dragons of autumn twilight um again in the next episode um but we can we can go to questions three for this if you like sure we can do that all right i'll say this about that if you're gonna excuse me if you're gonna go to questions three and we're gonna do this in two parts i'm also assuming that we will probably do the other two uh books in two parts as well I think think that's a reasonable assumption. Yeah. So do you want to do six questions three? (laughs) 
<laughs> What's your show? Let's do it. Come on. What do you got? All right. All right. Well, okay. So what's the first, so the first question is if you could be anyone in this book, who would you be? And I already said that you already said you had your answer. I do. Yes. Okay. And I'm going to see if I can guess your answer. All right. Because As a matter of fact, hang on one second. Let's see. Hang on one second. All right. I'm pretty sure you know who it is that I'm going to pick, but I'm going to write it down just in case. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm trying to do this backwards so it'll show up in the camera, right? Okay, so let me tell you why I think it's going to be Sturm, why you you would have picked Sturm, and then I'll tell you why you picked Tannis. <laughs> okay. Okay, so Sturm is this guy whose entire existence is based around honor and glory and living up to the um, – the high ideals of his forefathers. You, you always kind of reminded me of like that Viking sort of fellow <laughs> who honored his past and put a lot of stock in, in honor and doing the right thing. So that that's where I was coming from on the stern bright blade side for you. Plus you look good in a mustache. Well, thank you. Uh, I would actually agree with your assessment as well. And I, I, when you asked me originally, I said, I know who it is. And then I said, well, no, two people. Stern yeah. would have been my other. Yeah, um, yeah. If, I, if I hadn't said Tannis, it definitely would have been Stern. Okay, so and here's why it's Tannis that you would be because I mean Tannis is just cool. <laughs> Tan, Tannis, Tannis has got the best of both worlds, right? So he's got the you know that rugged human individuality, but then he's got this Im- immortal elven appreciation for art and beauty and song and life. He's got that Aragorn esque quality to him that I know that you admire. And, and Tannis can rock that beard. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Any of the pictures I've ever seen, it's just, it's a killer beard, dude. Kind of a fun insight that Weiss and Hickman shared in the annotations is that for the longest time when, when writing these, well, not for the longest time, but at first when writing these books, Margaret Weiss couldn't quite get into Tannis's headspace. And um, the way she was able to finally understand him, Tracy Hickman told her, look, Think of him like this. He's James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. That made it click for Margaret. So in at least in Tracy's conception, Tannis is James Kirk. All right. Well, how about me? I don't know, Dave. Who who would you pick? I if you were gonna be anyone out of all of these people, let's see, if I had to guess who it would be. You're gonna get it wrong. I am gonna get it wrong. because um, yeah. I'm gonna say Raceland. Yeah, I I know. <laughs> and I think in most circumstances, that's a good choice for me, right? But man, Raceland, he's kind of, he's a jerk, right? Raceland's a jerk. <laughs> Let's be honest about it. Yes. And, and and that would not be any way, in any way, shape, or form, my way of choosing Raceland for you. It would have been the bookishness, the smarts, yeah. you know, just the knowledge of so many different things and being so, I mean, look, you're the smartest dude I know. Uh, it, it's one hundred percent true. So if it was going to be anyone, keeping I would that in there. <laughs> <laughs> but because because it's not Raceland, I'm going to say Riverwind. Oh, Riverwind! That's actually a fantastic choice. I you Still not yours? Maybe, no, but you might make me change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Raceland, like I said, he's he's kind of a jerk. You know, because if I were just to take. Autumn Twilight on its own, then maybe. But because I do know what happens with Raceland throughout the rest of his life, it's just that's 
there, there's stuff to admire about Raceland, and then there's uh, there's stuff to be like, oh, this is uh, you know, not someone you aspire to be like. <laughs> um, and that that all comes out again later. But River Riverwood's a cool character. He's a he's a stoic. He's loyal. He's faithful. He's at first a little fearful and prejudiced against like elves, for instance, uh, and strangers. Uh, but he gets over that. He he befriends a half elf. And he becomes someone that really grows too. So Riverwood, I think Riverwood is a, is a really good, really great character. Okay. Tasselhoff perfect. All right. Taz is, he never lets anyone get him down. He's going to make the best of any situation. He gets to travel a lot. <laughs> he gets to find interesting things. And I, I never get tired of reading about Tasselhoff perfect. Every scene he's at, he steals, at least for me. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And if I had actually thought about it for a half a second, I would have said Tasselhoff. But yes, yeah, that's he's, yeah, that certainly fits you. He's a great character. Um, okay, so uh, the next question: If you could live anywhere in this world, where would you live? And I guess we have to limit it to the book that we're covering. Well, there's not very many choices. I mean, yeah, true. There's Solace. We don't ever get the Haven. Kyushu no. is burnt to the ground. They they don't say it, so it's possible that they are still there. But I guess Darkenwood, maybe? I mean, who doesn't want to live in a forest run by a unicorn? <laughs> yeah, no, nah, that's a great choice. You get to hang out with uh, the centaurs eating burgers and roasts all day and... My, my choice. But it's a fun town, right? I mean, it's got the houses in the treetops, and the end of the last home is a comfortable place to get tankard of ale, and of course, Otik's famous spiced potatoes. The innkeeper of the end of the last home. What he's famous for are these potatoes that he fries up in a skillet with various spices, so like salt and pepper and paprika and who knows what. There's recipes for Otik's spiced potatoes out there, as you can imagine. In fact, I have in front of me a book called Leaves from the Inn of the Last Home. Oh, yeah. I, I remember that. Yep. And th this was a book that came out um, when Dragonlance was at its height. And um, it's just, it's really fun. And it says, um, welcome guests to our inn. Shake the dust from your boots and throw off the cares of the weary road you travel. Have no fear of goblin or draconian, dragon or ogre, except in legend and song that you'll hear around our fire. This night, guest, you are safe and warm within the branches of the sheltering Valenwood. Um, and it's told from the perspective of, well, I, I won't say because it's kind of a spoiler. But anyway, okay. So this covers, there's amongst many things that's in here, you get... The Gold Moon Song set to music um, by Tracy Hickman and Janet Pack. You get some other poetry by Michael Williams. Um, you get some lore and history of the Dragonlance world. And then you get Tika's cookbook in which you get Otik's spiced fried potatoes. I will tell you, they make you wait to the end of the book to get because it's like practically one of the last pages. Cayenne is the secret spice. <laughs> ah, as it is in many things. Yeah, and onion. Cayenne and, and onion. Now, there have been other um, recipes for Otik spiced potatoes that have come out. Um, in fact, I think Dragon Lan or, uh, Dungeons & Dragons published a cookbook last year, and Otik spiced potatoes are in that as well. Well, okay. you know I couldn't pick Solace because it's in the trees, and I'm afraid of heights. 
Right. So, yeah. True. Yeah, that'd be bad for you. <laughs> it would be. Um, it would be very bad. So okay. So if you can change one thing about this book, stone buildings in the middle of the plains. Yeah. Where are they going to find? Where are they going to quarry all that stone? <laughs> I'm saying. I get it from a storytelling perspective. I totally understand that. And I'm not bagging on anybody, but, you know, everything up to that point seemed to be pretty okay. The only other thing I had a problem with was it seemed like you have this map and everything seems to be really distant from each other. And then they seem to be getting places like super fast. So, yeah. again, storytelling device, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. It, those were just the two things that stuck out to me as being just a little less than up to snuff. Yeah. All right. If I could change anything about this book, I've always, you know, people always like Sturm uh, for those reasons that I described a little bit ago, but I've always found him a bit off-putting. In what way? Uh, it just, he, he has such like derision and condescension for Raceland. So you you, you kind of understand Raceland's beef sometimes when you have to put up with someone as insufferable as Sturm. Sturm as a character doesn't really come into his own until the next book. The second half of this book, he 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 kind of becomes a little less insufferable, but he's really sympathetic in the next book. Yeah. Uh, what I was going to um, say is is if he's modeled on a paladin though, just using the description from uh, the first edition yeah. rules, I mean, yeah. that's he is a paladin. You yeah. know, you don't run from fights. You always help those who are less fortunate than you. You do not suffer evil, you know, any of those things. And right. Right. I think he's actually true to the character of a paladin. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a good observation. They talk about the the companions as as having been this found family, such close friends, uh, when it really seems like some of them really aren't all that close and it really kind of it's around like you know raceland really because sturm doesn't like raceland um he never liked him even as a when they were children you get the impression that while tanis trusts raceland isn't like him either raceland doesn't like any of the others doesn't really even like caramon that much it seems sometimes um so i i think i might that what i would have done differently is i might have established some bonds reasons why these these characters have bonds that made them so close and want to reunite after that five years of being on their own all right so that was questions three right okay uh in that case that takes us to chris's playlist slash word of the day yeah mine is visage that's my word visage Okay. <laughs> All right, we'll go with Visage then. <laughs> um, I think our listeners will know what Visage means, so no need to define. <laughs> hey, I got to tell you, I guarantee you, I am not the only person that says it that way. Okay. Well, uh, anyone who's listening to this, if they pronounce that word, um, Visage, uh, let us know <laughs> and support support Chris on that. Uh, in that case, I guess it's time for David's second shelf. David, what is on your second shelf, sir? 
I I'm going to so I'm going to cheat a little bit on second shelf this week or this episode, and I'm going to nominate the this book, the Art of the Dragonlance Saga. It is uh, one of the books that I've used as reference for the background material for this episode, and it's it's edited by Mary Kirchhoff who is, uh, would later go on to write some really great Dragonlance novels. But it's sort of like the, the behind-the-scenes of Dragonlance, uh, how it came to uh, be developed, and it gives you some of the early concept art from the, the project. And it's just a fun glimpse into the origins of the, the series. And it's, it's, I think it's out of print right now. I don't, you probably can only find it on eBay or the secondary market anyway, Biblio or a books, but it's, it's really cool. This copy is uh, from 1987. It's features art from all of the, the great Dragonlance artists, uh, gives some insights by um, Weiss and Hickman, just a, a good companion to reading the first trilogy, the Dragonlance Chronicles. All right. Fantastic. Well, that's it for this episode of the Fantasy Canon Podcast. Join us next time when we will continue to discuss Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Uh, we will get into the second half of the book. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. This helps us reach more listeners and to do more episodes. Until then, you can join the conversation at www.thefantasycanon.com or send us an email at thefantasycanon at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at thefantasycanon, and you can find us on Facebook at the Fantasy Canon page. Thanks for listening. Namarie. I uh, should say that I I appreciate the fact that you um, did read the book, <laughs> or at least most of it, <laughs> or at least some of it. <laughs>